We are exploring the question today, are science and faith compatible? And I wonder whether that's a question that is a really sort of live question for some of you, or maybe you've got friends at school or at work who kind of come to you and say, you're a Christian, how can you believe what the Bible says when we go to biology and we go to physics and we learn all this stuff about what science says? How does it all work together? Well, we're going to be looking into all of that today, and then I'm going to dive in in a minute, but you might wonder, why do I get to speak on this? I mean, why not Patrick or Richard? I do actually have a science background, okay, and I'm not trying to kind of like sound like make too much of myself, but just to tell you how come I get to talk on this, I've got a degree in chemistry, okay, quite a while ago now, I've also got a PhD, that's a postgrad degree in chemistry, and then I trained as a secondary school teacher to teach, guess what, chemistry, and then I got a job teaching, guess what, chemistry, at a secondary school for four years, and then I started to work for the church, and science kind of like slightly dropped out of my life. But I am a scientist by background and training. I am not claiming to be any sort of expert, certainly not in physics or biology, and even the chemistry that I know is from quite a long time ago. If you want to hear a real expert, the 11.30 service had Linda Morgan, who's a professor of biochemistry. So I recommend that one as well. Um, she'll be online later in the week. But I became a Christian at the beginning of my time at uni. And for me, this was never really an issue. I never really struggled to reconcile science with my own faith. But I have certainly been quizzed on this an awful lot by friends and fellow students and colleagues along the way. So I have sort of wrestled with this a bit over the years. And I hope that what we look at together this evening will be helpful to some of you if you've got questions about this yourself, if you were a bit of a thumbs down or a bit of a not really sure at the beginning, or maybe to help you engage in conversation with others around you who pester you and say, so what about all this stuff? Um, it's a huge topic. I've only got time to give an overview, okay? So a bit of a sort of hazard warning up front. I am going to give some suggestions near the end of some books you might want to read if you want to look at it a bit more deeply, or you can talk to me at the end or drop me an email if you've got particular questions. But let's start by briefly outlining what the problem is. Because there have been a lot of scientists, really famous ones, throughout history and still today, who had absolutely no problem in being Christians and scientists. People you might have heard of, like... Galileo, Kepler, Newton, Faraday, and loads more. But there are others who believe that science has now explained everything that we once needed Christian faith for. And so God is kind of redundant. God is out of a job. And they would say that science conflicts with what we read in the Bible in areas like, how did the universe begin? How did life begin? And what about the miracles we read about in the Bible? What it comes down to is this. Is the universe a closed system of cause and effect? I do this, it makes that happen over there. And there's nothing outside of that. Or is it a universe created by God, maintained and upheld by a creator God who is outside of that system, and can choose to act outside of those natural laws. And that's what we're going to be thinking about today. But before I start, I want to say a little bit 
about how we read the parts of the Bible that speak into this. Because as you probably know, the Bible is a really diverse book and it's got lots of different sorts of literature in it. It's got poetry, it's got history, it's got prophecy and so on. Now, if you're in English class, either now or in my case a few years ago, and you read a poem, you kind of know, I hope, that poets use imagery to paint a word picture of what they're trying to say and you're not supposed to take it literally. So that psalm that Luke just read for us, it says in verse 4, it says this, In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. So that's poetry. You're not supposed to go home and get out your telescope and look at the sky and try and find that tent. And you're not supposed to try researching on Google, type in, who is the bride who's going to get married to the sun? That's not the point, okay? because we know it's poetry. And we can take the point that the psalmist is saying, like, the sun is amazing, it shines really, really brightly. And we don't have to take every word literally. And the reason why I'm going into all of this is because people have questions about the creation stories at the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis. And most people who study this agree that those creation stories are also written as poetry, and so we don't have to take every single word literally. And linked to that, we need to make sure we're asking the right questions of the Bible. So because the beginning of the Bible is written in poetry, it's not trying to be a science textbook. Imagine your science textbooks. They're not really poems, are they? They're a bit different. And the beginning of the Bible focuses on who created the world and why the world was created. It's not looking at the detailed questions of how, what, or when. That's the realm of science. But we just need to be careful that we ask the right questions of science and the right questions of the Bible as we try and work out how this all fits together. I'm going to come back more to that a little bit later on, but I just wanted to introduce those ideas up front to set the scene. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at three areas where science and faith might conflict with one another. And then at the end, I'm going to come back to that psalm. So if you've got that psalm open on your Bible, on your Bible app, hang on to it. We'll get there eventually. But first, we're going to look at three areas of challenge. And we're going to start right at the beginning with the origin of the universe. So the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, it starts like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it goes on to describe how by a single command let there be light, and so on. God created every part of this amazing world. The sky, the land, the sea, the trees, plants, birds and animals, the sun, moon and stars, and finally, human beings in God's own image. But let's not rush ahead to the plants and animals. Let's pause at the very beginning, at the origin of the universe itself. Now, I'm sure you've all heard of the Big Bang Theory, which science puts forward to explain how the universe began. And this is not a science lesson. I'm not going to go into the detail of exactly what that theory says and talk through it all, because I simply want to say it's a model, it's backed up by plenty of evidence, and it's not seriously disputed in the scientific world. But does the Big Bang Theory conflict with Genesis 1? Well, I don't believe it does. So there are some scientists 
who do not profess Christian faith, and they actually don't like the Big Bang idea because they say that the universe doesn't have a beginning. It was just always there. Because what they're afraid of is that if they acknowledge a beginning, then a beginning points to the fact that there is a creator God who intervened somehow and started the creation of the universe. And the more you get into the detail of what happened at the Big Bang, the less likely it is that it just happened by chance. I mean, what are the, what are the chances? It has to have had some sort of input from a creator God. And the more scientists tell us about this universe, the more facts emerge about just how perfect it is to sustain life. So as they, they look into it and they research, there's all sorts of things like the rate at which the universe is expanding, the distance between the Earth and the Sun, the speed of rotation of the Earth, the mix of gases in our atmosphere, and so on and so on. And all of those things have just exactly the right value to make life possible. If you change one of those things, just the tiniest little bit, then our planet would become hostile to life and we wouldn't be here having this conversation. One scientist who worked on this calculated the probability of a planet like this existing as being one in 10 to the power 30. That's a number with one followed by 30 zeros. That is the chances of a planet like this existing by chance. So for me as a Christian who's also a scientist, I'm really happy with the Big Bang Theory and just holding that together with what we read in Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is not setting out to be a science textbook, like I said earlier. It's not trying to say how the world was created or when. Instead, it's answering a different question, focusing on who created the world. And so I don't think there's any conflict at all in allowing space for science to answer the how question with the Big Bang Theory. But we're going to move on now and look at a second related area where science and faith can come into conflict. And that's the question of how living creatures came into being, for which science puts forward the theory of evolution. And here, for me, the picture becomes a little bit more nuanced. Because many scientists would argue that evolution eliminates the need for a creator god because they say that all species of plants and animals evolved from simpler life forms by natural processes. There are two things I want to say on this area. The first one is really simple. So if you remember just that, that's absolutely fine, but I've got a second, slightly more complicated one as well. But the simple thing is this. Evolution does not have to rule out the possibility of a creator god. Because evolution is being put forward as a mechanism by which life came into being. And where did that mechanism come from? Well, it could very well have been part of the design of our creator God. It could be the way in which he created all living things. Remember, Genesis 1 is not trying to say how, but who created the world. That's the simple thing. Remember that. But the other thing I want to say is this, because it is a bit more complicated, and because evolution is used in a couple of different ways to describe different sorts of processes, and it gets a little bit confusing. Scientists talk about 
micro-evolution, that small-scale evolution, if you like. You might have heard it called natural selection. So imagine a population of moths, where you've got light-coloured moths and dark-coloured moths, and they live in a forest with dark-coloured trees. So these moths alight on the trees, and the light ones stand out, and the dark ones are really well camouflaged. So the predator comes along, and what's it going to eat? Well, it's going to eat the light-coloured ones, because it can see them. And so over time, the moth population becomes dominated by the dark-coloured ones, because the light-coloured ones have all been eaten. And that's natural selection, so that's a change in a species over time. But basically, it's just weeding out what was already there into stronger and weaker varieties. So that poses no challenge to Christian faith for me because it's not creating anything new. It's just weeding out what already exists. That's microevolution, the small stuff. But there's also macroevolution, the big-scale changes, where complex organisms are said to evolve from simple ones, like humans evolving from chimpanzees. And we're told, you might have had been in biology lessons, where you're told there's a lot of evidence in the fossils to back this up. Actually, it's a bit patchier than we're kind of led to believe for such a widespread theory. And on this, Christians have a whole range of different views. Some people say, yes, there's evidence for it. Macroevolution is the process by which God created the world. Others say, no, there's not enough evidence. God created all living things as they are, not by evolution. Me personally... I'm a bit on the fence. I don't think it really matters. Because remember what I said earlier, the simple thing I said? Evolution is a proposal to explain how everything was created. And the most important thing is who created our creator God. Evolution could be the mechanism he used. doesn't have to be. I don't think that's the most important question. So that's the second area. The third area where science and faith might come into conflict is the area of miracles, which we read about in the Bible. There's loads of miracles in the Bible if you read it. Everything from the resurrection of Jesus, the basis of our faith, through to miracles where Jesus exerts power over the natural world, like calming the storm or feeding the 5,000 through to miracles where he touches an individual's life in a miraculous way, in the healings that we read about in the Bible. Now, many scientists would say that the laws of nature are unbreakable, and it's therefore impossible to believe in miracles because those laws of nature just can't be overruled in a supernatural way, so miracles can't be real. may, may not surprise you to know I don't sign up to that view, but it comes down to a core question of faith. Is there a God or not? Because if there is a God, then our universe is not just a closed system of cause and effect with the natural laws governing everything. But God exists outside of that. God created matter, reason, time, space, and all the laws of science. And God is at liberty to intervene and overrule those laws if he chooses to do so. 
the natural laws describe how the universe usually functions, they don't set boundaries on what God can choose to do. Now, some people suggest that the miracles we read about in the Bible come from a culture where they were just a bit more ready to believe any old story because they didn't know as much science as we do now, and so they found it easier to accept miracles because they didn't have like, the knowledge that we have. But that's just not the case. So take, for instance, the Gospel writer Luke. He was a doctor. He'd done his science training to be a doctor. He wasn't just a kind of believe-anything kind of untrained person. And he begins his gospel by telling the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. They had been unable to have children for many years, and they got visited by an angel who prophesied that Elizabeth was going to have a baby. That baby was later John the Baptist. And Luke reports that Zechariah didn't want to believe the angel because he knew that he and his wife were really old and they weren't going to have a baby by any sort of natural process. It was just not possible. Even though he'd been praying for that very thing, he refused to believe that that could happen, contrary to what he knew of science. So what Luke is saying is that in that culture, people find it just as hard to believe in miracles as we do today. They knew their science. They knew that you know, people that age weren't going to have a baby. And if, in the end, they did come to be convinced that a miracle had happened... It was because they were convinced by the evidence in front of their eyes. That's what happened to Zechariah when John was actually born. It wasn't because they didn't understand the laws of nature. So we can't just write off the Bible's accounts of miracles as a product of an earlier age which didn't have so much understanding. If we believe in a God who is outside of our universe, then he has the power and the sovereignty to overrule its natural laws in the miracles as and when he chooses. So that's three pretty big areas, isn't it? The Big Bang Theory, evolution, and miracles. But I'm putting forward the case that there is no incompatibility between science and faith in any of those areas. You might want to dig into this a little bit more, and there's some suggestions for reading that are going to come up on the screen now. That first one, if, you, if you're into this, get your phone out, take a picture, or ask me afterwards and I'll remind you. But that first one, Nicky Gumbel, Searching Issues, is a book that actually goes really well with this whole big question series. It's got a little chapter on each of several big questions. It's really readable, it's not complicated. So that's a really sort of entry-level um, reading suggestion. The other two, John Lennox, God's Undertaker, and John Polkinghorne, One World, those are written by scientists who are also Christians, and they go a bit deeper into this one particular question. So again, any of those would be great to, if you'd like to take this further. But I'm going to pause now. I'm going to take stock of where we've got to. And I'd like to tell you a story. I'd like you to imagine that my aunt Matilda has baked a wonderful cake and I take this cake along to be analysed by the world's top scientists. The nutritionalists are there. They tell us how many calories the cake has got in it. Then we turn to the biochemists, who tell us about the proteins and the fats and so on. 
the chemists start talking about elements and molecules. The physicists break it down even more and tell us about the fundamental particles, and so on and so on. Can we say that all of those scientists between them have fully explained the cake? We certainly know an awful lot about how it was made and how the different parts of it fit together. But suppose I now ask the scientists, why was that cake made? They have no answer. They're baffled. Science doesn't tell them. But my Aunt Matilda is there with a smile on her face. She knows why she made it. She made it for her daughter's birthday. But the only way we can know that is to ask her, as the creator of the cake, to explain that to us. And that's the heart of this question, I think. Science is brilliant, but it can only get us so far. It does a great job in answering the how and the what questions. But in terms of why this universe was created, we can only know that if our creator chooses to reveal it to us. And the wonderful thing is that God has done so. And I'm going to just briefly turn back now to Psalm 19 that we read earlier to see how God has revealed himself. First, in verses 1 to 6, we see that God has revealed himself through creation. We read, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. I wonder if you ever stop on a dark night and look up and see the stars in the sky. Or, on a small scale, pick up a leaf and look at the beauty of the veins on a leaf. Because as we look at the beauty of this created world around us, whether on a huge scale like the stars, or on a tiny scale like the leaf, it is a testimony to our amazing God who created and who sustains this world. The psalm goes on, verses 7 to 11, to tell us how God has revealed himself through his word. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. So creation can point us to the existence of God the creator. But to get to know him fully, we need to read his word where he reveals who he is and how much he loves us. And then we get to the New Testament. We see how God's ultimate revelation of himself comes through Jesus Christ, God in human form, who came to live, die and rise again to supremely reveal God's love for us and make it possible for us to be in relationship with him. Colossians 1.15 tells us, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created. All things have been created through him and for him. Isn't that just so amazing? That the God who created this world and the whole universe knows and loves each of us personally. So as we respond, let's turn to him in praise and thanksgiving for his revelation of himself through creation, through his word, and through Jesus Christ. Amen.